Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the African Perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to West Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Luhoko and Figile Lungwati. In our top story, Zimbabwe parties sign a pact to challenge President Robert Mugabe. Calls for independent probe after mass graves discovery in the DRC. And World Food Programme warns of severe funding shortfall in Nigeria. In economics news, World Bank experts says Nigeria needs to reform its finance. And in sports news, Cricket South Africa name squad for ICC Champions Trophy. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Zimbabwe's National People First Party and the main opposition political party, the Movement for Democratic Change, have signed a pre-election agreement to fight against President Robert Mugabe's ZANU-PF party in next year's general elections. President Mugabe last week said the opposition was at its weakest and described the moves to form a coalition that would lead to a grand defeat of the opposition by his party. The MDC leader Morgan Changarai says they are working towards uniting the country. We have chosen this day to take the first step to bring all Zimbabweans under one roof so that we can work together to remove this unmitigated repression and misgovernance that (coughs) pervades our lives. I am pleased to inform the nation that today we have signed a memorandum of understanding with Dr. Joyce Mujuru of the National People's Party to establish a pre-election alliance and route to the establishment of a coalition government which shall drive a comprehensive democratization and transformation agenda. A notion shared by the leader of the National People's Party, President Joyce Majuru. We are very happy that today we have reached this stage, and I'm sure it's now marking not the long march that other nations have, have walked, but ours should be the short march, because we know exactly what should be done and what we have been discussing, even in NERA, even in our newly uh, formed uh, forum, the uh, Opposition Parties Forum. Lawyers for Zambia's opposition leader have asked a court to dismiss his treason case. Akiende Chilima was initially accused of treason on the grounds that he refused to make way for President Edgar Lungu's motorcade. He was subsequently charged with plotting to overthrow the government. The government has offered no further details on the alleged plot. His arrest has raised political tension in Zambia. Magistrate Greenwell Malu Mani has said a ruling would be made at a later date. The African Union and the United Nations have signed a joint framework for enhancing partnership on peace and security in Africa. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres and AU Commission Chair Musa Faki Mohamed signed the agreement in New York at the first annual AU-UN conference. Sharon Bryce-Peace reports. 
The agreement notes the primary role of the UN Security Council in the maintenance of international peace and security, while expressing a desire to forge closer cooperation between the two organizations in promoting peace and security in Africa. The document recognizes that attaining peace through joint efforts is critical to the achievement of the fundamental development goals, with a priority focus on the promotion of human rights as a fundamental principle of any peace and security effort. Both organizations have identified critical focus areas, among them preventing and mediating conflict and sustaining peace, responding to conflict, addressing root causes. And finally, South Africa's elite police unit, the Hawks, have confirmed that Nigerian televangelist and senior pastor of the Jesus Dominion International Church, Tim Umut. Umotoso will hand himself over to the police in Port Elizabeth. The unit has been looking for him since an expose on South African state broadcaster SABC on allegations of rape and sexual abuse of young girls. Hawk spokesperson Robert Nechunda. can confirm that we know where he is and we've been keeping um, him on surveillance. We, we've been in contact with his lawyers. He will be ending himself over to the Hawks today. And he knew that he was cornered, he, he had nowhere to run. We, we contact with us, we spoke to his lawyers, and we made the arrangements that today he will hand himself off. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Uh, the Zimbabwean opposition leader Morgan Tsangarai and former Vice President Joyce Mujuru signed a memorandum of understanding on talks to form a coalition to challenge President Robert Mugabe's ruling party in 2018 general elections in the Southern African nation. Tsangarai leads the movement for democratic change, while Mujuru, a former deputy to Mugabe, heads the National People's Party. Simon Muchema has more from Harare. When aged Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe announced his intentions to stand in the 2018 polls despite poor health citizens have been calling for the opposition to unite. On one hand, the country is said to have more than 50 opposition political parties which have been blamed for the split of votes in the past. This helped Mugabe to excel to victory in each election while his Zimbabweans felt a new leader was now needed in the country. However, the opposition could not afford to top up Mugabe without the unity of purpose which was announced Wednesday. In the coalition, Popular Movement for Democratic Change leader Morgan Changrai and former Vice President Joyce Mujuru would be fielding one candidate against Robert Mugabe. Changrai is respected for his bravery against Mugabe, while his Mujuru could become a key ally as she commands so much respect among his war veterans and ZANU-PF, creating a formidable force. Is this the answer Zimbabwe's want? Morgan Changrai had this to say. Um, today is a historic day in many ways. It is the first day of uh, the 30th year of our independence. 
but with the majority of Zimbabweans with nothing to show for it except dire poverty, extreme suffering, hunger and disease. Yesterday we had a leader who scattered the critical issues affecting the people during the commemoration of our independence. An important day that has now been privatized by a police. It is against this background that we have chosen this day to give the hope uh, to the people of Zimbabwe that indeed that there is a bright light at the end of this very dark tunnel. We have chosen this day to take the first step to bring all Zimbabweans under one roof so that we can work together to remove this unmitigated repression and misgovernance that <coughs> pervades our lives. Changirai added the marriage between the two parties is a starting point towards a grand coalition of all opposition parties. I am pleased to inform the nation that today we have signed a memorandum of understanding with Dr. Joyce Mujuru of the National People's Party to establish a pre-election alliance and route to the establishment of a coalition government. We shall drive a comprehensive democratization and transformation agenda. This is just the beginning of the building blocks towards establishing a broader alliance to confront ZANU-PF between now and the next elections in 2018. Similar arrangements will be entered into with other political formations and I will inform you as it happens, as we have done today. While political parties have their role in nation building, it must be understood that they are not the only stakeholders. We are in this together with other key stakeholders such as traditional leaders, the church, labor, vendors, war veterans, civic society, business, and the generality of Zimbabweans. Joyce Mujuru explained how the coalition was reached following protracted discussions between the two parties since last year. Without coming up with an overkill of what Dr. Changirai has said, this is something that we have been discussing since last year. We have taken more than six months, to say the least, of consulting, discussing, making ourselves understand as to what expectations our people have or should be given from the two of us. And I'm happy to say today is the day. And I'm sure the Zimbabwe populace and the world at large will really be you know, coming forward to also assist in many ways that we are going to put across and also giving us their ideas of how things should be done because we know your expectations are very high. And please don't look at our shortfalls or our misfortunes, but we are looking forward to seeing Zimbabwe being that great country that we fought for. While the coalition between Changra and Mujuru could be a tricky move, the idea is not new in the region with changes already being felt in Kenya. However, it remains to be seen if Zimbabweans are after a coalition of that nature or individual parties to stand against a veteran Robert Mugabe. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. 
17 new mass graves have been found in an area of the Democratic Republic of Congo that's seen months of clashes between government soldiers and local militia, the UN said on Wednesday. In a call for an independent investigation, the UN Human Rights Office said that DRC troops were reportedly responsible after clashes with Kamuyana Nzapu members in Kasai provinces in late March, which claimed at least 74 civilian lives. The development in the vast and resource-rich country comes amid ongoing uncertainty linked to President Joseph Kabila, whose second term in office ended last December. Here's OHCHR spokesperson Liz Trussell speaking to Daniel Johnson. UN investigators visited the Kasais between the 5th and the 7th of April where they were able to confirm the existence of 17 further mass graves and that brings the total number of mass graves that have been confirmed to 40. Right, so who are you saying, well you're pretty clear who the perpetrators are of, uh, of this violence and of these victims, you, you suggest it's the DRC Armed Forces, the FARDC. Well the UN investigators, the UN team on the ground spoke to people there and from the information that they gathered it seems that the soldiers from the armed forces of the DRC were responsible for, for digging these mass graves. There were also clashes with presumed members of the local militia that's known as the Kamwina and Sapu. And they got information that more than 70 people, including 30 children, were reported to have been killed by soldiers during these clashes. So that was clashes in one area. They also had reports and got information that soldiers were reported to have shot dead at least 40 people in the Nganza commune of Kananga. And this happened reportedly while soldiers were going door to door looking for militia members. And there was also further violence in another commune that's called Katoka, that's also in Kananga, where this time the police were reported to be carrying out searches and the reports of three people being killed there, including a month-old baby. So what exactly does the UN Human Rights Office want to see from the DRC authorities and perhaps indeed from the Kasai Central Province authorities? The High Commissioner said the discovery of, of, of these mass graves, more mass graves and the reports of continued violations, abuses, just show how important it is to have a meaningful investigation into all alleged human rights violations and abuses by all parties. I've spoken about uh, reported killings by, by soldiers, but there's also violence that's been carried out by the militia members as well. So what the office is saying, what we're calling for, is a meaningful investigation by the DRC government. But should there not be an effective national investigation, then we're calling on the international community to support an investigation by an international mechanism. You say you're calling for evidence gathering, but can we perhaps just go back to an earlier incident of violence, which was in February when members of the Kamwin and Sapu militia were apparently shot, according to video footage, by the uh, FARDC, the DRC Armed Forces. Do you have any information on that? Well, with that incident in February, as with others, that it is crucially important that there is an investigation. It's a thorough, independent and prompt investigation. So that's why we are making this call for an investigation into the killings, the mass graves in the Kasais. And it's also important that the circumstances surrounding that video are established. Can you maybe just give me the, an idea of, of what kind of communication there is and cooperation there is with the central government of Joseph Kabila and also with, say, local government in the Kasai central province where this insurgency is still going on? 
Well, the UN Human Rights Office has offered its assistance to, to help the DRC authorities conduct a credible investigation into these alleged abuses and violations in the Kasais. So it, it is a, a relationship of, of offering assistance, being prepared to help, but repeating our call that it's very, very important for the UN Human Rights Office to have access to all sites of mass graves, to witnesses, including those in detention. So really, we would stress that it's important that the, the DRC government embarks on a credible investigation and we stand by ready to offer our assistance. But should no national investigation be forthcoming, then it's really important then that the international community steps in. That was UN Human Rights Office spokesperson Liz Trossel speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. Now let's go back in time to today in the year 1979. The Federation of South African Trade Unions is founded to coordinate the movements of black trade unions. The organization had 12 partners and represented 45,000 workers. That was today in history in the year 1979. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The Democratic Republic of Congo's opposition rally remains divided more than a week after President Joseph Kabila appointed a new prime minister to lead the government of national unity. The new government is expected this week after Prime Minister Bruno Chibala concluded consultations, although the rally's leg under late opposition leader Etienne Chizagedi's son has refused to be part of such a government. Jean-Noël Pomeze reports from Kinshasa. The opposition rally leg under Felix Tshisekedi, well known as the Limited Rally, believes the President Joseph Kabila has violated last December agreement when he decided to appoint Bruno Chibala as Prime Minister. That's indeed the reason why the Limited Rally didn't even accept to be consulted by a Prime Minister described as chosen by President Kabila while he was supposed to be chosen by the opposition rally and appointed by the head of state according to the agreement. Bruno Chibala was chosen from the other opposition rally leg well known as the Kasavubu Rally. This leg's leader, Joseph Olengankoy, has called on all opponents, including those under Felix Tshisekedi, to come together and bring their support to the newly expected government of national unity. Joseph Olengankoy. We are determined for the government to bring together the skilled children of this country and we call upon our opposition rally fellows who are still hesitating to join us so that we can be really united and share ideas. And indeed, most of analysts here believe the appointment of a new prime minister instead of solving the crisis underway and lead the country towards elections has come to worsen the situation and things might be more complicated in the coming days.
The opposition rally had it very difficult to remain united after the death of its leader, Etienne Tshisekedi, since most of the leaders of the rally party members wanted to get the position and become president of the opposition rally. And according to this analyst from Africa Connection, Alan Waikani, Etienne Tshisekedi was working to promote his own image, and that's what the opposition rally is now victim of. If Tshisekedi left behind him people with the real ideology we could not face what we are facing today it is very clear the story is proving us that different leaders have passed away in this country it's the same with musician if you see a musician pass away there is nothing behind him saying that uh, the group will continue it's the same with the politician Chisekedi was working on his own image on his own ambition and the proof is there, no one can declare today the political heritage of Chisekedi because there is no that political heritage. Mobutu has passed away, no one can say today he has political ideology of Mobutu because it was not a political value, it was a value of people. And this is the consequence that Rassemblement is faced. It is a group of people around the interest of their own image their own wealth just listen in their debate there is no people in their debate there is no population there is no program but ask me right now on which program do you want to take the government what would you like to change nothing it used to be the habit of our political classes because in congo we work on the events we don't work on the ideology people work in this country on the present situation they don't work on the future and it's very very easy to be divided as they are today the new government might be known this weekend but most of observers here believe the opposition rally would get reunited first otherwise this country will remain under continuing trouble channel africa kinshasa jean noel bamweze it's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now going back in time to today in 1964, during his testimony at the Ravonia trial, Nelson Mandela says it says in his response to the South African government's apartheid pol- policies, policies that African nationalist leaders have resorted to violence. That was today in history in the year 1964. <laughs> This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de Soleil. Estando na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de Renascença Africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, Mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective.
The South Sudanese refugees in a camp in the Goma town of the Democratic Republic of Congo have released about 16 UN workers after kidnapping them. The refugees want to be relocated to another country. The UN representative in the DRC, David Grease Lay, addressed a media conference to explain the situation in the North Kivu province, eastern DRC, which he says remains concerning and worrisome. Okay, the security situation uh, remains very unstable in many parts of the east, particularly here in North Kivu. We remain concerned about the violence that we see, uh, particularly between the Hutu and the Nande communities, which continues to intensify. So we remain very concerned about that. Uh, it has improved somewhat uh, in the area around Bini, where the ADF has been a threat. And it's also been uh, a bit better in some of the FDLR-occupied areas. It's particularly the Hutu-Nande um, conflict that is particularly worrisome right now. But in addition, it's not just here in the, in the North Kivu area. Uh, we're concerned about the continued uh, escalation of violence in Tanganyika province between the Twa and the Luba communities there. That's, that's a serious issue. We've been working closely with the government to try to find local solutions uh, to end that conflict as well as provide security support. And then the third area of major concern, of course, is in the greater Kasai area, which actually is more problematic than uh, actually the conflict here in the east right now. The intention has always been uh, to provide only humanitarian support after having disarmed uh, those who were soldiers. Not all of them were soldiers. Some were civilians that crossed into the Congo. Uh, and the intent is for them to go home eventually, whether uh, directly, as this group has done, or go to a third country uh, where they can wait until peace returns to South Sudan. But that's the intent. And we continue to work with our government colleagues to find solutions as we have today. The key issue is, is to improve the quality of governance on the ground, ensure that people have a chance to, uh, to live in, in, in peace and, uh, and to have uh, prospects for economic growth. I think those would all go a long ways to solving the kind of conflicts that we have here. That was UN representative in the DRC, David Grease Lay. It's 8.25 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The Deputy General Secretary of South Africa's Communist Party, the SACP, Jeremy Cronin, says he thinks it is unlikely that a constitutional court application by several political parties to enforce a secret ballot when voting in a motion of no confidence in Parliament will be successful. Cronin took part in a debate on the state of South Africa's ruling ANC and whether the party is capable of renewing itself. The SACP, Trade Union Federation Kosatu and EFF took part in the debate. The debate was facilitated by the Alternative Information and Development Centre. Zaline Merrington reports. The main point of the debate, is the ANC capable of renewal? But speaker after speaker made it clear that the ruling party is on a downward spiral. The alliance partners of the ANC have publicly expressed its opposition to President Jacob Zuma, calling for him to step down. The Deputy General Secretary of the SACP, Jeremy Cronin, says the ruling party is surely facing implosion. To deal with the removal of Zuma, he was challenged by EFF MP Mbuiseni Ndlozi to make use of a secret ballot in a motion of no confidence, a matter currently before the Constitutional Court. We want to, want to challenge uh, Comrade uh, Jeremy. You've got people of the SACP in there, in Parliament, Chief. 
listen to the veterans of the ANC. Listen to the successive presidents of both the country but to the genuine leaders of the ANC who have called for all members of parliament of the ANC to vote correctly in this motion of no confidence. I can tell you now, the continental post-colonial lesson is very simple. If we do not remove Zuma, we are heading a downward spiral into a full-on kleptocratic despotic regime. But Cronin declined the offer. Moiseni says that the quick, quickest way to remove Zuma is through the parliamentary uh, no-confidence vote. First of all, I very much doubt that you're going to win your constitutional court thing. And as far as I'm concerned, I, I'm happy for my vote, whatever it might be, uh, to be open. Uh, so I'm not, I don't want to hide behind um, uh, you know, an anonymity. But the, I'm not sure that he is going to be removed through the parliamentary vote. Uh, whether it's, whether it's a, a secret ballot or not. And even if he is removed, he remains still the president of the ANC. Alliance partner Kasatu warned that the mistakes of the past should not be repeated. Western Cape Provincial Chairperson Tony Ehrenreich says one personality shouldn't merely be replacing another. We've made the same mistake we made when we asked President Zuma to take over from Mbeki. We're again personalizing the issue. So the problem here is much more than Zuma, clearly. The ANC's National Working Committee had defended Zuma. Both Cyril and Gweda to apologize for some of the statements they make, which clearly shows us that it's not just an individual. We don't know where the National Executive Committee will come out on this matter, but clearly there are many in the NEC that's also been bought already, and they're preparing themselves for the December conference. So clearly the ANC, if that's the environment, is not the champion that it was in 1994, and we should start by admitting that. The motion of no confidence was scheduled to be debated this week, but was postponed to allow for the court processes to run its course. Amzaline Merrington in Cape Town. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, lawyers for Zambian opposition party leader Hakienda Chirima, accused of trying to overthrow the government, have asked a court to throw out the case, saying the state's charges were vague and ambiguous. Zimbabwe's National People First Party and the main opposition political party, the Movement for Democratic Change, have signed a pre-election agreement to fight against President Robert Mugabe's ZANU-PF party in next year's general elections. And Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari has ordered an investigation into corruption allegations against a senior civil servant related to the use of funds intended for handling a humanitarian crisis in the northeast of the country. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. Let's go back in time to today in 1961. As the nationalist uprising of the Popular Liberation Movement of Angola, MPLA, enters its sixth week, Portugal is warned by the UN that reforms must be introduced. That was Today in History in the Year 1961. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
South African constitutional law expert Pierre Defoss says the application by opposition party, the United Democratic Movement, to the Constitutional Court for a secret ballot in the pending motion of no confidence against President Jacob Zuma might not be successful. The Economic Freedom Fighters and the Inkata Freedom Party have joined the UDM in its bid. The three opposition parties agree in their affidavits on the need for the vote to be held in secret. The EFF argues in its papers that the decision to vote out Zuma in a no-confidence motion is a contested one in which there is no unanimity even within the ANC and therefore should be held in secret. DeFoss explains. Well, the UDM is asking for many different things in the court paper. Firstly, they are actually asking for the court to tell the speaker that the speaker does have a discretion to decide on a secret ballot. So far, the speaker is claiming she doesn't have that discretion. I would be very surprised if the court doesn't rule in favor of the UDM on that issue because according to the rules of parliament, it is clear, according to me at least, that the speaker does have a discretion to decide for herself whether to give a secret ballot or not. I am not so sure that the court will rule in favor of the UDM in the second issue, namely that it will actually order the speaker to exercise the discretion in such a way that a secret ballot is in fact held because the court will be a little bit reluctant to interfere with the internal uh, arrangements made by the legislature itself and so it will be respecting the separation of powers and not rather get involved in that. There have been arguments about when the president is being nominated in parliament that a secret ballot is being used. Why can't the same apply in this instance? Well, that is the strongest argument that the UDM has. They would say that because the constitution requires a secret ballot for election of the president, by necessary implication it should also require a secret ballot for the removal. The uh, High Court of the Western Cape in the Tlohama judgment, however, said that because the constitutional drafters explicitly refused to include a provision that you need a secret ballot for a vote of no confidence, that was a deliberate choice. And so that was a choice not to require a secret ballot when you have a vote of no confidence in the president. And for that reason, the one does not imply the other. In terms of what has happened right now with the UDM and all opposition parties heading to court asking for the Concord to actually intervene, does this stretch the Concord's role in terms of the democracy of the country? Because now the Concord seems it's the only hope or rather people always run to it for um, assistance. Mm. Well, you know, that is what constitutional democracy is all about. People can go to court sometimes frivolously so, sometimes for very important reasons. The court must decide if something is constitutionally valid or not. As long as the court makes it clear that it will respect the separation of powers, but it will enforce the constitution, but not overstep their own powers, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But of course, there's a political question, and that is one must be careful not to just rely on the court's for what sometimes can appear to be really political questions and political problems, because we have to solve political problems in a political way, not in a legal way. 
And now in terms of the ANC parliamentarians, obviously there's been a, an argument about them when they took oath of office. They actually uh, pledged their allegiance to the country rather than to the party. But there are also clauses which say they are there because of being part of their party, putting them in that position. Now, how difficult is this going to be for the UDM to argue this case? Because, I mean, the ANC can also argue this point to say our MPs are there because we put them there. Yes, so I think that is one of the strongest arguments in favor. Our system is a little bit messed up in a way, to put uh, colloquial language on it, in that we don't ever vote for a person. We always vote nationally and provincially only for a political party. So we don't vote for the people on that list that happens to go to the parliament. We vote for the party and really, in effect, we're voting for the leadership of the party of our choice. And so they would obviously argue that in that context, it would be a rather undemocratic for people who nobody has ever heard of, who's not elected themselves, but only there because they are membership of a party and they're on a party list, that they should not be allowed to, in a way, subvert the political will of the people by voting out the leader of the party as leader of the country if that party happens to be the governing party with the majority in the National Assembly. And with this case and others, there's been a lot of calls, um, a reform in the way our constitution is, because now we see a lot of loopholes which were never exposed, I suppose, with what's happening with regards to the political landscape. Would it be easy for such reforms to be put in place? Well, it is maybe desirable to put reforms in place. It is not going to happen, though, because Turkeys don't vote for Christmas. So the politicians are not going to change the system, which is to the benefit of those who are in charge of the political parties. The political parties like it that they control their members who are represented in parliament. And I cannot see that they would vote to change it because then they will lose power vis-a-vis those people who are actually democratically elected to represent the people. That was Pierre de Foss, South African constitutional law expert, on the line speaking to Tutong Gubeni. The United Nations World Food Programme, WFP, has warned that severe shortfalls of donor funding could endanger the lives of 4.7 million people affected by hunger in Nigeria's volatile northeast region. The agency has received just under 15% of the 416 million U.S. dollars it needs for its operations in the West African country this year. According to WFP Acting Regional Communications Officer Elizabeth Bryant, the agency needs 200 million US dollars urgently to keep feeding Nigeria's hunger-stricken population. Bryant elaborates. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, great one. About 4.7 people are severely hungry, or what we call food insecure, and that's in northeast Nigeria, particularly in three states. Um, that's Borno, Adamawa and Yobe. And we believe that in the coming weeks, in the lean season, um, that's usually when the rain, uh, when people have depleted their resources, and in this case, farmers can't farm, um, those numbers of hungry people are going to rise to about 5.2 million. Now, what impact is uh, the upcoming lean season, which some experts have uh, predicted might have on agricultural harvests in 
the region. Will this make the situation even worse uh, if enough funding is not received? In fact, they, the experts believe that the upcoming lean season will be moved up to as early as May. And it's usually about June or July. And that's because people have very few resources, very little to fall back on already. And farmers are prevented from going to their fields because of the insecurity. Um, fishermen or herders uh, more broadly, you know, are also prevented um, from accessing their livelihoods, again, because of fears of insecurity. Um, so all of that is going to impact not only the coming harvest, but also the, uh, you know, the, the which they already have. In other words, the resources they might have in the past to tie them by, they no longer have. So the situation is truly dire. And in fact, in some pockets of that area, um, there are sort of famine-like situations. It's not a lot um, for the moment. Maybe 44,000 people are in that situation. That's just an expert guess. But that would also rise to about 50,000, for example, in June. The World Food Program has received just under 15% of the 416 million U.S. dollars it needs for its operations in Nigeria this year. How, how much exactly does the World Food Program need right now in order to be able to keep feeding Nigeria's hunger-stricken population? Yes, we we have a, a real uh, need for funding of more than $200 million between now and, let's say, the end of September. Um, and that money has to come in soon. Why? Because we need to um, dock up food. Some, A lot of it we try to buy locally to support the local economy, but some special nutritional products we need to import, and that will take time. And young children are going to be the first to feel uh, the hit if the funding does not come in soon. Also, we do have food that's in the area, but we need to have the cash to buy it. So again, that's the urgency that's needed. Um, WFT can do the job but we need to have our donors step up to the bat and do so quickly. Now, as we speak right now, Elizabeth, many lives have already been lost as a result of this famine in Nigeria. What contingency plans do you have in place just in case donors don't come on board to assist with the much-needed funding? There, the UN in general has sounded the alarm that Nigeria, along with three other countries, Sudan, Yemen, and Somalia do face a real risk of famine. And once you hit that situation, a lot of lives have already been lost, and it costs a lot more to fight a famine than to prevent one. So first, it is much smarter to look ahead, prepare, etc. WFP has done that. We do have stocks in place. Um, We have ordered ahead to position stocks so that we can tap them quickly. The problem is, we do so we do have some food on hand, and we have made some cuts, which is not good, but that's also to help um, 
tide people by with the food that we have so that we can stretch it a bit further. And just finally, Elizabeth, apart from the agent need of funding, what are some of the challenges that your organization faces when distributing food to those who are in need in that region? Sometimes extremely difficult. Why? Because of access, because of the insecurity. We have, um, we came up with the UNICEF um, to do what we call a rapid response. We, we, we tap helicopters. They can go to areas that are often remote and inaccessible um, to, to be able to reach people who are often the hungriest. However, it also depends uh, that there's a fairly good security situation in the area so that we can take some of those helicopters out. So uh, it's not obviously just WFP, it's all the humanitarian workers in the area. Access is really key. Access, along with funding, is a huge obstacle to getting our job done, and we're hoping that we can um, over overcome it with some, you know, with the support that we're getting already from the Nigerian government and hopefully some, um, you know, increased security in the area. And that was Elizabeth Bryant, WFP West Africa Regional Communications Officer, speaking to Channel Africa's Kumbera Munjadele. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. I'm Tabisolo Hoku with an economics update. Good morning. South African economists say Finance Minister Madhusi Kikawa faces an uphill battle when he embarks on his first international trip following the cabinet reshuffle. Kikawa has traveled to the U.S. to meet with Moody's Ratings Agency as well as potential investors. Kikawa told the media yesterday that there's no guarantee that the country will once again be downgraded. He said a downgrading by Moody's will have a devastating impact on the economy. Moody's is the only agency that has not downgraded South Africa to junk status. Chief Economist at Econometrics, Azizumi. I think it's going to be extremely difficult. The key question that people are asking is if 
there was not going to be any major change in the direction of economic policy and fiscal consolidation was going to be sustained, then why was Pravin Gordon replaced by Malusi Gigaba? You know, a lot will depend on what he achieves within Treasury, also who he gets to succeed. Lungisa Huzila, the markets and investors will be confronting. Do we have continued stability or is this just a facade before a 180 degree change in direction? World of finance leaders are gathering at the U.S. President Donald Trump's home turf to try to nudge his still-evolving policies away from protectionism and show broad support for open trade and global integration. The International Monetary Fund and World Bank Spring Meetings bring the two multilateral institutions, 189 members, face-to-face with Trump's America First agenda for the first time, just two blocks from the White House. The IMF's managing director, Christine Lagarde, aims to socialize the new administration to the IMF's agenda and influence its policy choices. The World Bank's chief economist for Africa, Albert Zufak, says Nigeria needs to reform its finance to ensure it can hedge against any future currency crisis. Zufak says currency adjustments could lead to higher inflation, but continued monetary policy tightening would lead to price pressures, adding that making fiscal adjustments in the West African country, now in its second year of recession, would be extremely challenging. Nigeria, Africa's biggest economy, is facing a currency crisis brought on by low oil prices, which have hammered its foreign reserves and created chronic U.S. dollar shortages, frustrating businesses as well as individuals. The World Bank says that the economic growth in sub-Saharan Africa is seen rising between this year and 2019. The bank says in its latest Africa's Pulse report that economic growth is seen expanding to 2.6% this year and further to 3.2% in 2018 and 3.5% a year later. The World Bank says sub-Saharan Africa growth was estimated 1.3% in 2016. The bank says the 2016 growth was the worst for the region in more than two decades, hurt by poor performance in Nigeria, South Africa and Angola. The International Monetary Fund has slashed its projection for Burundi's economic growth this year to nil and projected just 0.1% in 2018. But it gives no specific reason for the 2017 revision from 2%. But Burundi has been suffering from a severe drought like much of the wider region. The Central African nation's economy has also been battered by almost two years of political instability triggered by President Biangurunzi's decision to seek a third term. Financial indicators at the Sawa. The US dollar trades at 13.29 in South Africa. It's at 10.31 in Botswana and at 9.31 in Zambia. 7.7 to the British pound, 9.3 to the euro. Gold, $1,278. Platinum, nine six nine. Dollars an ounce. Brand crude five three dollars three three cents a barrel. 
Channel Africa's economic update. My name is Tabiso Lohoku. Our sports updates up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, starting off with cricket news. The Proteas named veteran fast bowler Mone Mokel and uncapped Keshav Maharaj as the only two surprise inclusions in the ICC Champions Trophy and tour of England ODI Series squads. Mokel returns in this team ahead of still injured Venon Philander and Dale Stain, while Maharaj was preferred over the up-and-coming Tabriz Shamsi. Proteas coach Russell Domingo explains Maharaj's tricky selection ahead of Shamsi. Firstly, it was a tricky selection because there are a host of spinners that have done really well for us. You think of Aaron Pangiso, you think of Chamsey that's played over the last couple of weeks. Bottom line is you've got one spinner that seems to be head and shoulders above everybody else, and that's Imran Tahir. So he's the number one spinner. And the challenge we faced as selectors, I felt, always was trying to play two spinners in a starting 11 if they both can't bat. And that's always been a challenge for us. You need those seven, eight, nine contributions of the bat. Um, so that was a big factor in deciding to go with uh, Keshav because he does offer you a bit more batting depth than a guy like Shams would offer you, then a bit more batting depth than a guy than Pangeese would offer you. And that was the main reason for going with it. He does bring a lot of control. He's done fantastically well in the test circuit thus far. His domestic one-day record is fantastic. He averages 25 with the bat and I think 28 with the ball at an economy rate of just under 5, 4.9, which is as good as any spinner. So should we play two spinners? It allows us that opportunity a bit easier than if we had two frontline spinners who couldn't bat. The Proteas are scheduled to play three warm-up matches against England later next month on the back of two tour matches against Sussex and Northrends before the tournament kicks off in June. Domingo says they will use two games, those ones, wisely, to prepare seeing there will be no time for a training camp before departing. It's hard. I think the training camp's in the RPL at the moment. I mean, most of the guys are busy playing there. And then they get down here on about the 10th. We've asked them to come back a day or two earlier. We will then have our CSA awards on the 12th and 13th. We will allow guys to go home for three days to just spend a bit of time freshening up. And then we leave on the 16th for two warm-up games. And I think our first game is the 22nd. So there's not too much time for a camp, to be honest. But I suppose the plus side of it is that a few guys are playing county cricket at the moment. You think of Wayne Pondell. There are a few guys playing IPL cricket at the moment. And the guys at Art Home will be doing some work with their franchises. And should need be, we'll come up to the centre in Pretoria and do some work there before we leave. And in athletic news, the country's growing list of world-class sprinters will lead the charge this week as the number of elite stars target double titles at the ASA Senior Championships. The South African National Championships take place in Pochef's room on the 21st and the 22nd of April. In-form Olympic finalist Agani Simbine will turn out as the favorite for the men's 100-meter and 200-meter crowns. Simbine, who has clocked impressive times of 9.92 and 19.95 in the short sprints this season, 
will line up against 400 meter world record holder Wade van Niekerk, world championship 200 meter bronze medalist Anna Sojobodwana, and gift Lotlela in both events. Former national 100 meter record holder Henrico Brankis and Tando Roto will focus on the short dash, while Antonio Algana will compete in the flat 100 meter event and the 110 meter contest over the barriers. And in local football, the South African Premiership side, Mumbledore Sundowns, uh, completed a double over their cross-town rivals, Supersports United, as they beat them 1-0 in an APSA Premiership match at the Lucas Muripe Stadium in Atterville, that's South Africa's capital, Pretoria, last night. And that's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the hour. Zimbabwe's party signed a pact to challenge President Robert Mugabe. Calls for independent probe after mass graves discovery in the DRC. And Wall Street program warns of severe funding shortfall in Nigeria. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa for today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutu Ramagadze and Khomutu Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. And taking us to the top of our for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Andy Brown with the song title Takura.